0: Chapter 2 The Source of Sinful Desires We began the last chapter with a very relatable passage of Scripture, Paul's monologue beginning in Romans 7.14, where he describes his wrestling with and bondage to sin. But then we hinted at the idea that if we truly know and believe the gospel, we should no longer be able to relate to this passage. The gospel has to be better than this, To put it bluntly, if Romans 7 is an accurate description of our current spiritual lives, then we are not living the new life of freedom which we have been granted in Christ Jesus. It is proof that we have not learned how to access by faith this grace in which we stand. Romans 5.2 We have been living under law and calling it a state of grace. Despite being free, we have continued living as slaves. This is always the result of trying to obey God by our own willpower. Only the truth will set us free, and only faith will bring about the obedience and love we so deeply desire. At this point in time, we do not need more love, more discipline, more prayer, or even more grace for that matter. We need more truth. We need more faith. We need to know how the gospel works. As we read the rest of Romans 7, I believe these things will become even more evident. And as you will see, this passage lays a great foundation for the gospel. But before we get on to the main takeaway from Romans 7, we must briefly address its most common misinterpretation. Paul, the slave to sin? Starting in verse 14 is where many get lost in Paul's rhetoric. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh, sold under sin. For I do not understand my own actions, for I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. By changing to the present tense, whereas he had been using the past tense, it appears that Paul has begun to talk about his current spiritual state. But if the reader knows Paul at all, they almost inevitably feel some internal conflict. Could the same apostle who said, I am not aware of anything against myself, 1 Corinthians 4.4. 4, also have said years later that he was still such a struggling wretch? And how could the man who so confidently urged his disciples to be imitators of me as I am of Christ? 1 Corinthians 11.1 1, Here be so pitifully defeated in sin. It is admittedly a little confusing. But fortunately, we can do far better than merely speculate about Paul's spiritual life. We need only to look at the surrounding passages for our answer. For example, in verse 14, Paul says, I am of the flesh, sold under sin. But just earlier in verses 4 and 5, he indicates to his Christian brothers and sisters that they are no longer living in the flesh. Not to mention, he tells them explicitly, a couple of paragraphs later, that they are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. Chapter 8, verse 9. And what about his being sold under sin? Has he not just spent the entirety of chapter 6 explaining to them that they are dead to sin? Chapter 6, verse 11. Set free from sin? Chapter 6, verse 7, 18, and 22. No longer under the power of sin? Chapter 6, verse 14. There is no reason to doubt what he means here. In Christ, they have been set free from the law of sin. Chapter 8, verse 2. And are no longer debtors to the flesh chapter 8, verse 12. Tell me, were all the Christians in the spirit, but Paul still in the flesh? Were all the disciples free from sin, but the apostle still enslaved? I can hardly imagine an argument so biblically unsound as this, and we have only touched on the first of 12 verses in this passage. Must we go any further? Is not Paul's rhetoric in this passage completely contradictory to the rhetoric of triumph and victory, which he provides to the church in the rest of chapters 6 through 8? Unequivocally, it is. You see, it is quite evident that Paul is not speaking about his current spiritual state. Rather, he is speaking as someone who believes in God, desires to obey Him, yet is still living under the law. He is describing the state of slavery that a person who delights in God experiences, but does not yet know the grace of Jesus Christ, like, for instance, himself when he was a zealous Pharisee, and therefore remains under the power of sin. He is contrasting this miserable state of slavery with the state of grace and freedom that his believing readers are truly in. If we miss this point, believing that it describes the state of every believer, the best we will get out of this passage is solace. Indeed, we will read it like one slave saying to another, I get it, man, hang in there, it'll all be over soon enough. But the other, more dangerous possibility is that it will become one of the passages we champion to validate our own pitiful experience. We will go on pridefully about the hard, grueling nature of the Christian life. Humbly insisting that no one can expect to have any greater freedom than Paul appears to have in this chapter. Anyone who suggests otherwise, we will say, is either prideful or naive. And suddenly but surely, having given greater power to sin than to the Spirit of God within us, our gospel will become practically impotent. However, the moment we recognize that this is not meant to be a depiction of the Christian life— but of the state of someone under the law and not grace, it becomes an amazingly practical passage that will help us to see the gospel in all its beauty. Flesh and Spirit We have already learned some very important concepts, but there is one more crucial piece of the puzzle without which we cannot understand the full extent of our problem, and more importantly, the gospel solution. We have learned that the power of sin is the law, 1 Corinthians 15, 56, but now we must discuss what is the weakness of the law, the flesh. See Romans 7, 5-6, and 8, verse 3. As we are about to see plainly, this is not to be mistaken with our spirit. In fact, the weakness within us that sin takes advantage of may not be in us nearly as much as we thought. Here lies the final piece that will lead us to the glorious victory of the gospel. The Spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Matthew 26, 41, Mark 14, 38. Let us take some necessary time to make an important distinction between our spirit and our flesh. Biblically speaking, these refer to the immaterial and material self, respectively. This is not necessarily to say, That the two are separable, but distinguishable. Footnote 4. I recognize that many Christians have strong and differing beliefs on the nature of being, and I do not desire here to make a case for my own, as I believe it is beyond the scope of this book. The conversation becomes complex and confusing very quickly, particularly because there is such a wide range of words used in the Bible to describe the parts of a person as well as a variety of meanings for the same words. That being said, one of the best ways to determine whether your paradigm is true is to, one, hold it up to Scripture, and two, pray for Revelation. Not only in that order, but back and forth, back and forth. It is helpful to use the most literal translations of Scripture for this process so that you know which words were actually being used. Consultation of good scholarly resources is always encouraged, if not necessary, since dealing with other languages. Don't dismiss things too quickly, and don't accept them too quickly either. Humbly seek God for wisdom, and expect Him to give it to you. If it makes sense of things that were once confusing, and if it appears to maintain its integrity throughout the whole of the Bible, then you may be on to something. This is the process by which I personally settled at the understanding of a material and immaterial self. Fortunately for us, it also happens to be the most simple and intuitive explanation of them all. Isn't it possible, or even isn't it quite likely, that humans are exactly as we most intuitively perceive ourselves to be, body and spirit? End of footnote. The spirit is commonly described in the Bible as the mind, the inner being, the heart, the soul, etc. You can use whichever term you like. I will continue to use spirit and self most frequently in this chapter. And in the following chapters, I will use heart quite often as well. This is the ego or the person which contains my personality and my will. Most importantly for our discussion, this is the I that loves God that repents and believes, or otherwise, the I that rejects God and willingly goes after the passions of the flesh. In the church today, this is what gets most of the negative attention. In other words, if I feel empty and depressed, then I determine that I am empty and depressed. If I feel angry or hurt, then I must be angry or hurt. If I feel anxious or worried, then I need a cocktail. If I have certain sexual preferences, they are what I prefer. If I continue to struggle with an addiction, then I am an addict. If I feel a compulsion towards something, then I must want it. If I said something that I should not have said, or did something that I should not have done, then I am at fault. If I lack the discipline to pray, then I do not love God enough, etc. The general assumption is that the corruption, the fallen nature, exists in my spirit and is a product of my own will. Thus, it is a reflection of me. But as we will come to see, I may not always be the problem. Again, as the wise master said to his disciple, "The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak." Matthew 26:41, Mark 14:38. Now, the concept of flesh deserves greater attention here, as it is a more nuanced word and more widely misunderstood. First, and this is not the most rudimentary meaning of it, but it is prevalent in the New Testament and will be helpful to us later. The flesh sometimes carries the connotation of human doing, and thus works of the law. Paul tells the Philippians to put no confidence in the flesh. Philippians 3.3 3 equating it to a righteousness of one's own that comes from the law, chapter 3, verse 9, and contrasting it with the righteousness from God that depends on faith, chapter 3, verse 9. To the Galatians, he says, having begun by the spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh, i.e. works of the law? Galatians 3, 3. To be born of the flesh, or born in Adam, is necessarily to be under the law, having to obey God with one's own strength. Another helpful example is in Galatians 4, when Paul uses the story of Abraham's two sons, Ishmael and Isaac, to allegorically make this point. Ishmael, he says, was born according to the flesh, and Isaac was born according to the spirit. Chapter 4, verse 29. Obviously, Isaac was born in the flesh, just like Ishmael. But Ishmael was born according to the flesh, which means that his birth was accomplished by human will and effort to bring about God's promise. Contrarily, that Isaac was born according to the Spirit means he was born by God's doing through faith. In Romans 8, when Paul speaks about those who live according to the flesh, chapter 8, verse 5, this is part of the inherent meaning. In other words, Living according to the flesh does not necessarily mean that we are trying to disobey, as many of us have been taught. In all truth, one can earnestly be striving to obey God while still living according to the flesh. But in the flesh, we are under the law, and despite even our best intentions, we remain enslaved to sin, unable to please God. Footnote 5. Paul's short discourse in Romans 8, 5-8 is, in fact, the summary of his argument in Romans 7, which we will soon read. End of footnote. Why? Because of the law of sin that dwells in my members, i.e., my flesh. Romans 7, 23. This leads us to the other, more fundamental meaning of flesh. The flesh is closely related to the body, And I will use the terms body and flesh interchangeably throughout the book, as does the Bible. It is the nature we were born into, and it is the temple in which our spirits reside. We must not confuse the flesh and the spirit with one another. My spirit describes me. My flesh describes the body that I am in. Flesh is the term used for all living creatures on earth, and therefore... It carries with it the connotation of that which is earthly, carnal, and animal in nature, as opposed to that which is spiritual or heavenly in nature. Given how all earthly creatures are described as flesh, it is no surprise that obedience to the passions of the flesh is what the Bible calls sin. It is not okay for us to be like irrational animals, creatures of instinct. 2 Peter 2.12, C.F. Jude 10 obeying every impulse as animals do. Perhaps one of the clearest definitions of sin can be found in Romans 6.12. Let not sin, therefore, reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. It is worth clarifying that, according to Greek grammar, the its in the latter phrase can only refer to the body, not to sin. Therefore, it should be interpreted like this. Let not sin, therefore, reign in your mortal body or flesh to make you obey your body's passions. We sin when we obey the desires of the flesh. In the same way that animals have drives and desires which are not the product of a conscious will but the product of their flesh nature, we too have bodily passions which come from our flesh nature and not necessarily our conscious will. The difference between animals and us is that we are to be image bearers of God, obeying His will, exercising His dominion, and showing His character, regardless of what our flesh would have us do. We are not to be subservient to the body, letting it control us, but servants of God, offering our bodies to Him. See Romans 12.1. This ought to lead us far away from the heretical conclusion that the body is evil, Some may be quick to label me as this kind of heretic, although I am not. Our bodies are not at all like prisons that we need to escape. Rather, they are like temples that need to be cleansed and reappropriated to their original purpose. They were created good, manipulated by evil, corrupted by sin, and redeemed in Christ. Just because the second and third of those statements are true does not mean that the first and fourth are untrue. Our flesh is not evil. Rather, its desires are manipulated by evil to deceive our spirits into sin. We will talk more extensively about how this occurs throughout the book. Next, and this is very important, the flesh and its passions are not all merely physiological in nature, but psychological too. This makes sense if you consider the fact that chief among our organs is the brain in which occurs a wide spectrum of thoughts and feelings, both positive and negative. In a way, the flesh has a mind of its own. Footnote 6 Worth noting is that this aspect of the flesh is, on a select few occasions, referred to in the Bible as the soul. Greek, psuche. See 1 Thessalonians 5.23 and Hebrews 4.12. These passages can be quite confusing, since soul is most commonly used interchangeably with spirit. By misunderstanding the use of the original language, these passages have led many to believe that the soul and the spirit are two distinct aspects of a person in addition to the body, yet this conclusion is inconsistent with the rest of scripture, and I believe it adds much confusion to otherwise simple spiritual truths. In the select cases in the New Testament, when soul and spirit are juxtaposed, the soul is referring to the flesh, or the mind of the flesh, as opposed to the actual person, or spirit, inside the body. End of footnote. Along with things like lust, hunger, anxiety, depression, and addiction, it also produces such things, or is vulnerable to such things, as pride, fear, greed, jealousy, and resentment. Again, we know that animals can feel all of these things. This being the case, it is quite easy to mistake this mind of the flesh with one's true thoughts and feelings, believing that because one feels it, it is how one truly feels, or because one desires it, it is what one desires, etc. This can be true, but is not necessarily true. In actuality, there are all sorts of things that occur in our minds, which make us think all sorts of thoughts and feel all sorts of feelings, but that have nothing to do with who we really are, what we actually believe, or what we truly want. I would assume that we all have experienced this many times, whether we have recognized it or not. Think of an occasion when you were genuinely convicted of sin, you repented and determined to do right, you had every intent and desire to move forward in righteousness, And then in no time at all, you were tempted to do the very thing which you had just turned away from. And then, after giving in to the temptation, you felt the exact same grief and conviction as you did before. So what is going on here? Do you hate the sin or love the sin? Which is proof of what your spirit truly desires, the sin or the conviction that follows it? According to Scripture, it is the latter. Assuming a sincerely repentant heart, it was not you that desired to sin, but your flesh. For I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. So now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. Romans seven seventeen. The desires of the flesh may appear to be a part of you, but if you confess Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, then you must not confuse them with you. As I noted above, this is what Christians have done all their lives. But please hear me now. It must stop. It is quite literally spiritual suicide. You are not your flesh, and your flesh is not always an expression of your spirit or will. If you are going to walk fully in the victory that Jesus has won for you, you must be able to distinguish between your spirit and your flesh between you and your body. It will be a central theme moving forward. Flesh or false self? At this point, we must address what is sure to be a sticking point among some believers regarding the concept of flesh. There are many Christians who interpret flesh, Greek sarks, to mean the old or false self which desires to sin, whereas your new and true self does not. Footnote 7 This may be partly due to the fact that many modern Bible translations render Paul's words for the old man as old self. See Romans 6.6, 6, Ephesians 4.22, and Colossians 3.9, which is somewhat misleading. When he says man, Greek anthropos, he is referring to the flesh, but not to a version of yourself, as in your spirit. End of footnote. In this understanding, the flesh is not material, but immaterial. Not physical, but spiritual. It is a person and a will, rather than the body in which the person resides. And therefore, every believer has two selves dueling inside of them. I would like here to give this viewpoint due attention, since I believe it can seriously hinder one's freedom. The most basic problem we should recognize in this view is that it completely contradicts the inherent meaning of flesh, which literally describes the soft tissue of the body. Second, and perhaps most importantly, Jesus came in the likeness of sinful flesh. Romans 8.3 In fact, He had to be made like us in every respect. Hebrews 2.17 To be able to help us when we are tempted, since He also has been tempted. But here is the problem. If we understand the desires of the flesh to be the desires of a sinful self, then either A, Jesus was a sinner with His own evil desires, see Matthew fifteen eighteen 18-20, or B, He did not actually come in the flesh, nor was He tempted as we are. Of course, we know that neither of those is true, for He in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Hebrews 4.15 That being the case, this spiritualized understanding of the flesh actually threatens the integrity of the Incarnation on multiple levels. Not to mention, if we want to learn from Jesus how to overcome the passions of the flesh, it helps to understand what exactly it is that He overcame. Not His own desires, but the desires of His flesh. Next, a very practical problem is that if the flesh and the Spirit are two selves— one good, one bad, that you must choose between in any given moment, then there must be a third self to make the choice, which is intuitively ridiculous. Otherwise, which self do you hold responsible for your actions? Say, for example, you do something that you are not proud of. You later are convicted and desire to repent. In an effort to grow you think back to the occasion and investigate how you allowed the sin to occur. According to this belief, the old self is responsible for all sin, and the new self is responsible for all righteousness. So first, you think to blame the old self. But if you have any integrity whatsoever, you cannot really blame him. He is a sinner just doing his job, and he is not really you anyway. He is the old false you. So you have no choice but to blame your new and true self, since he is the one who is always supposed to do right. It is his job to kill off the old self, and he failed. But wait, I thought that all sin came from the old self and all righteousness from the new self. Then how did the new self allow the sin in the first place? By definition, he could not have, or else he does not appear to be very new. You are now back to blaming the old self And it starts all over. It is quite a maddening process, and once you finally realize through logic that there must be a third self who truly makes the choices, you see that these other two selves are really just different expressions of you. There is not actually a true you and a false you, there is only one real you. There is not actually an old you and a new you, there is only one current you. Thus, You are an ever-changing mixture of old and new, good and evil, righteous and sinful, free and captive, dead and resurrected, however impossible and paradoxical that may seem. This is the only logical conclusion of the dueling self's theology. It is altogether contradictory to the amazing gospel of Jesus Christ, which says that the one you has been made completely new. I imagine getting to speak to the apostles in heaven and saying something like, Hey, when you wrote flesh, did you actually mean flesh? Or when you said body, did you really mean body? Stifled by such an obvious question, they would simply say, Yeah, that is what I meant. How else could I have said it? Oh, how the devil has twisted the simple meaning of the biblical text. Read it like a child, and you will see that it means exactly what it says. As you are beginning to see now, this is not a matter of mere semantics or personal opinion. In the New Testament epistles, sin is consistently portrayed as obedience to the passions or desires of the flesh, the members, and the body, not the soul, the self, the heart, or the spirit. All that to say... This slight distortion of the term flesh has made the original apostolic message nearly incomprehensible. Footnote 8 You may wonder how this happened, the spiritualization of the flesh. I do not know for sure, but I believe it is the result of an overreaction to the early heresy of Gnosticism, in which material existence was believed to be evil and inferior to spiritual existence. Gnosticism's contempt for the flesh led naturally to the conclusion that God did not become flesh, or if he did, that the resurrection of Jesus Christ was not a bodily one. The incarnation and the bodily resurrection are, of course, central doctrines of the Christian confession, which needed to be defended, and they were. But as is often the case, the devil uses heresy not only to make people believe one lie, in this case that material existence is evil, but then to distort the truth that is being defended, creating another lie entirely, that there is nothing corrupt in our material existence, and evil is only in the spirit. We have tried so hard to preserve the goodness in our earthly nature that we have blinded ourselves to the corruption within it. What better way for Satan to distort the gospel than to make believers think that sinful desire is still a product of our heart, despite God's work of giving us a new one. Fear of falling into the Gnostic heresy is the reason that Christians read passages like Romans 7.5, Romans 8.9, or 2 Corinthians 5.16, which indicate that we are not in the flesh, and determine that the flesh about which Paul is speaking must be something other than our material nature, or else Paul appears to be a heretic pushing for disembodied existence. But this conclusion is completely unnecessary to avoid the Gnostic error, and more importantly, it distorts and convolutes the gospel. These passages, which indicate that we are not in the flesh, point to another reality entirely the hidden life in Christ in heaven. We will speak to this more beginning in chapter 4. End of footnote. This will become much clearer, I hope, in the following chapters, but for right now, we should recognize the real trouble it causes. If we go on thinking that the flesh is actually part of the self, it renders us incapable of identifying the source of our sinful desires. And knowing not what it is that enslaves us, we cannot understand how Christ frees us. Knowing not what it is that wars against us, we will never know how to fight back. Knowing not what it is that depraves us, we are unable to see how Christ sanctifies us. The father of lies would have it no other way. Willful Disobedience or Slavery Now that we see the distinction between the spirit and the flesh, we can easily grasp what is occurring in the latter half of Romans 7. Before reading it again, let us first remember the context. Paul is making a case to the Roman Christians that the law is no match for grace in its ability to bring about obedience. His point is this, as long as we continue living in the flesh and under law, striving to obey with our willpower, we will continue under the power of sin, despite our desire to obey. As you read the scripture again, notice that Paul describes himself in two distinct parts. There is an I who delights in the will of God, and there is another, called the flesh, chapter 7, verse 14, 18, and 25, members, chapter 7, verse 23, and body, chapter 7, verse 24, in which sin dwells and reigns and contradicts what he truly wants. Using the understanding of flesh and spirit from the last section, I will highlight some of these verses, including the appropriate label in brackets. I do what I, spirit, do not want, but I do the very thing I, spirit, hate. Romans 7.15 For I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is, in my flesh, for I have the desire in my spirit to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. Romans 7.18 I delight in the law of God, in my inner being, spirit, but I see in my members, flesh, Another law, waging war against the law of my mind, spirit, and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members, flesh. Who will deliver me, spirit, from this body, flesh, of death? Romans seven twenty-two 22-24 Do you see the conflict? This is not the battle between two selves, but between a corrupted body of flesh and a willing spirit. Paul is not describing a state of willful disobedience and a need for repentance, but a state of slavery and a need for deliverance. In fact, he feels this so strongly that twice in the same stream of thought, he says that when he does what he does not want to do, it is no longer I, Spirit, who do it, but sin that dwells within me, flesh. Chapter 7, verses 17 and 20. Doesn't this sound a lot like the verse I have already quoted twice? The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Mark 14.38 A point worth clarifying is that Paul is not overlooking or diminishing the importance of repentance or a change of heart. Rather, he is assuming that it has already happened since he is writing to believers. But thanks be to God That you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed. Romans 6.17 This is my assumption as well for those who are reading this book. The truth is that we have misdiagnosed the problem. When it comes to sin, we too often have wrongly assumed that the culprit is our heart, our will, our spirit, our self. No matter how much we truly hate the sin, we would not dare have the audacity to say, it is no longer I who do it, despite that these are the very words used by the Apostle Paul. Instead, we say self-deprecating things like, if only I wanted God more, if only I loved him like I should, if only I wasn't so, insert insult, etc., then I would obey. What a lie! It is not true, You are murdering the image of God in you. You do want God. You do delight in His will. His love has been poured into our hearts. Romans 5.5 Our failure to see this has led to generations of Christians living in unnecessary condemnation and slavery, waiting and praying for the day that they finally have enough love or willpower in their hearts to overcome sin. Yet this day never seems to come. Faith alone will do the job in Christ and His finished work, and we will soon begin to see how this is so. But perhaps the first step to freedom is to recognize that if we have already repented and given our lives to Jesus, if we already delight in God in our inner being, then the desire for sin is not in our spirits anymore, but in our flesh, that is, our bodies. Footnote 9. Once again, I must insist that this is nothing close to Gnosticism. I am not saying that the body is inherently evil, but that it is weak and corruptible. In this case, the solution is not disembodied existence, but redeemed bodily existence, restoring its inherent goodness. End of footnote. For repentant believers, sin is not a reflection of our genuine will. Be patient, continue reading, and I think this will become more clear to you. Like Paul, we need to distinguish between the self and the sin, and to discern that it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. Again, to be clear, this is only true for born again believers whose spirits are new. An unbeliever's heart or spirit is still contaminated with evil desires. And the point here is not to say that we are not culpable for our sin, but rather to recognize where the source of our sinful passions lie, in our flesh, not our spirits. For the believer, this does not negate the need for repentance. It just changes the way we repent. It does not mean we are unable to sin. Rather, it ably equips us to fight against sin. And while this does not yet get us all the way to victory— It is a solid foundation for comprehension and application of the gospel.